Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we're looking back at our first season. Can you believe it? It's already been a whole year of Business Books and Company. And we're ranking our favorite books and our least favorite books. And we're going to look individually and we're going to look collectively. And I am so excited. But before we get to it, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Hey, I'm Wilson Hart, and um, I think I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> and I'm David Kopeck. I'm the assistant professor of computer science. Okay, so we read 12 books over the last year, and each of us has gone and individually put them in an order of our favorites and our least favorites. Molson, I want to start with you. What was your absolute favorite book that we read over the past year? Zero to one. And why? Probably just because I'm an entrepreneur. It's contrarian. It's weird. Um, I like Peter Thiel. Uh, it's really thought-provoking. It was easy to read. I, I don't know. It's like relevant to my own life, which makes it really easy for me to like the book. I really like how it inspires you to give you a big ambition. You know, like I, I think it's cool when people try to do big things and everything that Zero to One is about is all about like doing something really big, uh, you know, like building a big company. So to me, that's important. What about you, David? What was your absolute favorite book over the last year? So I did have Zero to One in my top four, but it did not make it to number one. My number one was High Output Management. And I think I've said it on the, the podcast a couple of times that, yeah, I really think it's the best business book that I've ever read. I found the advice in it very practical and useful, and I definitely have adopted a lot of the practices that it suggests in terms of you know working with my teams and the, the people who've reported to me. And there's actually an incredible amount of overlap between our top fours. We each ranked our top four, and three out of the four books were the same across all of us. What were those three books? Well, I think it varies, actually. <laughs> I, think, I think we all share three, at least. But anyway, my, my top four were... One, high output management, two, setting the table, three, founders at work, and four, zero to one. Molson, how about you? All right, zero to one, made in Japan. And I got to talk to you why you didn't put that in your top four, because I really like that book. Uh, made in Japan, which is about Sony and the founder of Sony, Akio Morita. Setting the table by Danny Meyer of Shake Shack. Uh, I'm just going to say Shake Shack shame, Shake Shack fame, <laughs> or maybe shame. And high output management by Andy Grove. And me, myself, my top four were Made in Japan, Akio Morita and Sony, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, High Output Management by Andy Grove, and Founders at Work, Stories of Startups Early Days. So David, why didn't you put Made in Japan on your top four? Because both of us thought that was one of our, really the best that we read the last year. I mean, I thought it was good. I have it as number six on my list. And I think probably for me, it was that I didn't feel like I learned as much from it as I learned from a lot of the other books. And that might just be because I studied Japanese when I was a kid. I took classes in Japanese culture. I, I knew a fair amount of Japan prior to reading the book. So I, I really enjoyed the book. I didn't know a lot about the Sony story, but like I think that the most interesting parts of it were about Japanese culture. And I feel like I knew a lot of that stuff prior to reading the book. So that was why the book didn't like jump out to me as one of, one of the you know, top ones in terms of what I really learned. Yeah, that makes sense to me because I actually love the book because it included so much Japanese history and Japanese culture in it as well. And so it was not only interesting to hear how Akio Morita built Sony, but it was also interesting compare and contrast Japan with the United States. And that was something that he was willing to do quite outright throughout the book is he was willing to give his views on America and why certain things in American culture or in American business 
are incorrect or correct compared to Japan. And I, I love that, that kind of back and forth. Me too. I just want to echo what Kopech said. So I just figured out that we read that book in October, I'm pretty sure, uh, October mm-hmm. of 2019. In November, I, with my brother, kind of inspired by that book, like literally flew to Japan and like attempted to close deals in Japan. And it worked, which was cool. I mean, we managed to close one deal in Japan. It's a crazy story. We were just like in Osaka one day and my brother had done no preparation whatsoever. And then I called, I like just start searching on Google for Japanese translator. And then this dude named Yuzo picks up the phone and I'm like, hey, I need a translator for today. He's like, today? And I'm like, yeah, today. And he's like, okay. And then next thing you know, <laughs> we, we like went out to the suburbs of Osaka and we were in this like Japanese dude's like music studio. And he just started like cold calling people with the script that we gave him. He would like cold call Nintendo, cold call all these like random Japanese companies. And we ended up getting three meetings and uh, it was really cool. And the whole point of this, uh, me bringing it up at least, is that like reading that book gave me maybe a false sense of confidence, but it gave me the sense that we would actually be able to succeed in Japan because we had, uh, we had the playbook. We like understood how Japan worked versus, versus the United States. And so, I don't know, positive feelings associated with that. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's why you're a great entrepreneur, Molson, is you just go for it. Like you get an inspiration and, and you just die for it. Why wasn't your brother prepared when he got to Japan? Because he's a useless piece. <laughs> um, no, uh, he's like a slower decision maker than I am. And I'm better at like planning things ahead and just like grabbing moments by the, by the testicles, I guess I could say. I mean, like we were in, in Japan and we were, do- I forget, we had just like come from China or something like that. And he hadn't done enough preparation. And I was really pissed that he hadn't lined up a, a translator because I had been telling him for like weeks, like, hey, dude, you need a translator. And then he was just like, oh, I'll get to it. And we're like in the hotel room in Japan. I'm like, dude, you can't get to it. We're only going to be here for six days. So I just got on Google and just started calling people. So all three of us agreed on zero to one and all three of us agreed on high output management. But both of you had setting the table by Danny Meyer on your list, but I didn't. So what was it that the two of you liked so much about setting the table? I mean, I thought it was a phenomenal look into hospitality. And I think it was quite different from a lot of the other books that we were reading for that reason. So I think it just taught very different lessons from a lot of the other things that we've looked at. And so again, I think for me, the main reason that I want to do this is to learn. And I just felt like I did learn a lot from the book. I think the lessons that Danny Meyer had about how to treat a customer, um, how to work with your employees, how to you know work within your community, I thought those were really valuable. And it's something that I've certainly thought about a little bit myself, but I hadn't really done much actual reading and so I think that's the, the reason that it resonated so strongly with me. And when I was thinking back across all the books that we'd read, why it, it dropped, jumped to, I think I said it was the number two book that we read. How about you, Molson? I think it was your suggestion that we even read it. Yeah, I really like that book. So first of all, with regards to your first point, I think that's a good one. So if you, if you cycle through the 13 or maybe 12 books that we read, you've always, uh, only the paranoid survive. That's tech, zero to one. That's tech. Leah, I, Coca, not tech. It's cars. You have the Disney book, not tech. Just basically something like 70% of our books are actually tech. Like even Ross Perot, you don't think it's tech, but like he was he was doing tech at the time. And so it, it was kind of nice to look at like an industry that people think is a little bit less uh, susceptible to change. The reason why I like that book outside of that like foray into the hospitality business is that 
I think it, it provides you with the emotional complement to the unemotional high output management. Um, it lets you kind of like, you know, it gives you the touch and feel version of management that I wasn't very good with and probably I'm still not good with, but became better as a result of reading that book. Kopech, why didn't you love that book? Is it because you're a misanthrope? No, no, I, I couldn't relate at all to the main character. I didn't find Danny Meyer at all relatable on any level. I had trouble appreciating what he was doing because I couldn't relate to his industry even. And I, I, maybe it's not an industry that I understand very well, which is high, you know, very high-end dining. And I thought a lot of it, honestly, was kind of BS. He, he always would go like, why the heck can't it be this way when he would do something different? And he didn't give any like evidence of why it should be one way or should be the other way. Just this is what worked for me. It's basically a whole book on like, this is what worked for me, which is what a lot of these business books are. But it was, this is what works for me in an industry that I don't understand uh, by a guy that I couldn't relate to. And, and so you could see how for me, you know, it didn't, it didn't speak to me in any way. Really. Yeah, and we should call out that you didn't just not list this among your top books. You actually listed it among your least favorite books, which we haven't gotten to for everyone. But I think that's the only uh, case where the books that other people had listed in their top ones ended up as, as someone else's you know, least favorite. He doesn't just talk the talk of them. Like if you go to his restaurants, like I know that in his books, he talks about like weird sh- stuff that he does at his restaurants. But if you go there, like there are restaurants that do not do tipping whatsoever. And I'm not talking about Shake Shack. I'm talking like high-end dining. And there are, I forget what else he does, something with like sparkling water. He like says it's complimentary. I don't know. He does. He actually does the things that uh, he says that he does in those books, even though they're weird. So I, which makes me respect it. Well, and in the coronavirus, he did shut down a bunch of his restaurants very early and he did lay off his employees, but he did give them, I think it was like two weeks of severance, which is pretty much unheard of in the hospitality space. And I think he paid for their health insurance for like an extra month beyond that as well. So, I mean, on the one hand, he shut down the restaurants. He did take away people's jobs, but unemployment was available at the time. And, you know, frankly, with the uh, the CARES Act, even probably potentially paying people more than they were making at the restaurant. Again, I don't, I don't know. They're, they're hiring restaurants, so people might make decent money, especially if they are getting tipped. But he did put his employees first in some ways, although I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure if I can 100% buy into that. I think shutting down the restaurants when he did, maybe he did that because he put their health care first and like he didn't want to risk the, the you know, health of his employees. And so shutting down, you know, needed to take place. But he hasn't really said that. I think he's more said he needed to do it, you know, just economically. And so to some extent, that feels a little bit like he put his investors maybe higher on the list than he originally listed. Well, what was he going to do? Like, pay their salaries in NYC for like four months. I mean, I, I think you kind of alluded to the right way to judge it. It's like, if you believe in capitalism, the way to, to judge whether or not he talks the talk or walks the walk would be what the Danny Meyer restaurant group or whatever his company is called do for their employees relative Union Square hospitality group, Union Square hospitality. What did they do relative to other restaurants? And I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. And for what they did for the employees, I think it's a lot more than most. I'm sure there are whatever some instances of some restaurants that did even even more than they did. But it sounds like they did go above and beyond. But I mean, could he have sold some of his leases early on? I don't know. Probably very difficult to do. I don't know if he actually owns any of the buildings, but he has, you know, certainly many millions of dollars of Shake Shack stock. I mean, there's a lot of things he could have done to keep giving money to other people 
that he didn't choose to do. He did give much more than than most others do, but I think he's down to like 70 employees from, you know, thousands a few months ago. So, right. I yeah, I heard him on the Masters of Scale podcast and he laid off some or furloughed, laid off or furloughed something like 90% of his staff. Was um, that a hate listen Kopech? <laughs> No, no, I listened to it because now I know who he is. I spent 300 pages learning about him. Like, okay, so, you know, let's see what's what he's up to. Turns out, oh, it's not a family. It's a business. And when the rubber hits the road, you got to fire everybody. And so this like getting, you know, all nostalgic in his book about how much he loves everybody and how everybody's so great, you know, like, well, <laughs> first chance he had to, they're all gone. They're not sleeping on his couch. So, I mean, you know... <laughs> Capitalists will be capitalist. That'd be legit. He was like, you're all invited to my house now. <laughs> you can all sleep in my penthouse. <laughs> yeah. Danny Meyer sold all of his Shake Shack stock, every <laughs> single one of the restaurants, and he opened up a hotel for the employees to stay at. That, If he put them all first above everyone else, he would do something like that. I mean, again, I'm not saying that's a realistic thing you should expect anyone to do, but no one else is saying you put your employees above everyone else either. Well, some, again, some others are, but... Most people aren't portraying their business vision as that. What was the other book that we did? So you didn't like Made in Japan. We figured that out. All right. The, the question is, why didn't I like Founders Stories? Founders at Work. Well, yeah. Founders at Work was a book that both David and I ranked in our top four and you didn't. Why not? Some of the stories just kind of sucked. <laughs> I don't sure. know. It was just like kind of uneven. I mean, there were some cool ones and... I don't know. I just couldn't get that into it. I'm not really sure why. I, I like the Photoshop guy, the Adobe guy story. And I don't know. It's just like we've read a lot of tech books and we've read a lot of tech books kind of like from that era. It felt like, you know, it's like we read one book from Paul Graham. We read a book from his wife who read that book and wrote that book. And it, was, it was it was not bad. I like recommend it to people who want to start a company because it gives you a diverse view of like how that can go. And also maybe another thing is like, I've started companies, right? And so it's like, uh, it's like I have my own stories. That's a good point. I would certainly agree that it was inconsistent. And I think in the original podcast I did, uh, both Kopech and I, I think, talked about that fact that there are definitely some that are worth, you know, skipping or skimming at most. But I think for me, the great thing about it was just reading so many of those different stories over and over again. I think I've done that sort of haphazardly through following people on Twitter and reading their blogs and things like that. But I don't think ever before in one month I had read 33 different stories of tech foundings. And unlike you, Molson, I have never done that. So I think it was definitely beneficial to me. Um, but I, I definitely agree that it was it was not it was probably the least consistent of the books, I would say, actually, even even among the ones that I didn't like. Well, no, maybe the Ross Perot one, which I which which <laughs> comes up at the bottom of my listing. Maybe I would say that was the, the least consistent. Um, but it's it's among the most inconsistent books that we read just in terms of some of the interviews were super interesting and I learned a lot and like there were stories that I thought I knew about and I learned things that I'd never heard before. So just like really incredible. And then there were some where it was just like, I don't even know why she interviewed this person necessarily. <laughs> like they don't seem to have a lot of value to add other than they sold a company for, you know, tens of millions of dollars. But that was a while ago and they don't even seem to really know why they'd succeeded. So anyway, I would say uh, I fully agree with you that it was inconsistent and there were parts of it that weren't worth reading. But if I were going to reread anything in the book, it would definitely be among the top three, I would say, in terms of rereads. So I would say high output management, I'll definitely reread. Zero to one, I think I'll reread and hackers, not. 
<laughs> and Founders at Work, I'll, I'll reread. Yeah, no, I agree. It was inconsistent for sure. But the interviews that were good were really good. Some, some of the interviews that were good were really good. And the, even though it was basically all tech, I think it might have been all tech. There might not have been even a single interview that wasn't tech. It really was a diversity of different tech experiences. So you had tech companies in the OOs, you had tech companies in the 80s, you had um, different kinds of founders from different backgrounds founding different kinds of tech companies. So if you're thinking about founding a tech company, which I guess I've done before and I plan to do again in the future. I mean, this is a book that gives you a lot of other people's input to download into your brain. Why didn't Ogilvy on advertising hit? Yeah, it was like, it was like, it was cool, but it was like, eh. Yeah, it was number five for me. So if, you know, if we'd done top five instead of top four, it would have, it would have made it into that list. I would say again, though, that that one, why it didn't make it into the top four is probably just because it is about advertising and that particular industry. While I find it interesting, and I did sort of work in it for a little while, I don't really plan on becoming an advertising executive. And I feel like that is who that book is really written for. Yeah, same thing. It just wasn't exactly for me, even though I learned from it. And I I definitely think it was a good read. Uh, it was just not something that, like, you know, is going to be my Bible going forward. Whereas something like Founders at Work could really inform what I do in the future. In the same way, where, you know, I think when we looked at these lists, each of us was really making a personal list of top four and bottom three for each of us. And for me personally, it's not going to inform my future as much as a book like Founders at Work. And for the same reason that setting the table also was on the bottom of my list because it's just not something that speaks to me. Kopech, have you given us your top four so far? I'm not sure if we actually Yeah, so there. my top four were Made in Japan. That was my number one by Akio Morita about Sony. Zero to One was my number two by Peter Thiel. High Output Management by Andy Grove was my number three. And Founders at Work by Jessica Livingston was my, my number four. I think uh, Ogilvy on Advertising would have been better if it had been the story of that guy's life more than it had been like... This advertising copy is effective at selling cigarettes in this 1965 magazine. I think he actually has another book called, I'm going to blank on it, but it's like uh, something of an ad man or whatever. Uh, And I think that might be a little bit more of like his biography and story, Confessions of an Ad Man, I think it's called. So maybe that's worth uh, taking a look at, Molson. One interesting thing about Ogilvy on advertising, it's actually one of our top three most listened to episodes. So our number one episode is high output management, probably because it was our first episode in terms of uh, number of listens. Number two... All downhill from there. (laughs) Number two is actually Trillion Dollar Coach, which was our third episode. And then number three is Ogilvy on advertising, which is our sixth episode. So for whatever reason, that topic uh, spoke to our listeners. Well, we also actually made advertisements for the Ogilvy on advertising episode. True. So yeah. I think I got three clicks on that link, though. So I'm not sure that my <laughs> ad at least drove the uh, the significant number of additional listens. I think mine had uh, 20,000 clicks, 40,000 listens, something like that. So actually, the two books that all three of us agreed on that were on our top list were Zero to One and High Output Management. Why do you think that those two books spoke to all three of us? Uh, I feel like we've beaten this horse dead, but <laughs> output management, it was just like explain things simply. And it kind of like is mind blowing in a way such that it changes the way you think about a topic. And I would say the same thing kind of applies to zero to one. What's so special about zero to one? It provides you with a completely new and provocative framework that teaches you 
how to create a company. And it also gives you like a, at least for me, that excites me, a good dosage of like ambition and like you can do it. I think that that maybe the distinction there, and I could be wrong, I haven't thought about all 12, is that they actually have like theses and try to teach you something in a way that the other books like tangentially do, but they're more of biographies and like, or autobiographies and like sort of hagiographies almost that high output management and zero to one each had like a clear thing that they were trying to teach you. And while they gave specific examples from their um, business experience, and they both have clear, you know, successful businesses, it wasn't here's, you know, what I did as a kid. And then here was what I did in college. And then here, like, blah, blah, blah. It was, I want to teach you how to be a better manager. And like, I'll give you some examples from things that I did. But like, here are like, very practical, specific pieces of advice that you can take and run with. And zero to one, like, this is how you actually create a startup. This is not like, how did Peter Thiel do it? It's thinking about everything from like a philosophical perspective what is the way to actually go about it? But could you not also say that about only the paranoid survive and it will be on advertising? Yes, you're right. Those did to some extent. And I, I have those you know, decently highly rated as well. But I think also the three of us are probably more interested in tech than we are in advertising. And then only the paranoid survive. Honestly, I think if it had been one of the first books we'd read and we'd never read high output management, I might've rated it higher. I think it really suffered just from comparison to high output management, which again, I think is the best business book I've ever read. And, you know, I love one of the words you used because it was a word I was going to use, philosophy. So I really felt zero to one was at some level a philosophy book. It, it wasn't just a business book. And on the other hand, high output management was super practical, right? It gave you advice about how to actually do management. It gave you advice about how to run a company. It gave you advice about how to hold meetings which actually the advice about how to hold meetings, I actually use even in my job. So I, you know, I thought that they were coming at me from two different uh, layers and together they really you know, offer you the whole package. So I, I think, I guess we can all agree based on our rankings, right? That people listen to this podcast, if you're just going to read two books that we've read, read High Output Management and read Zero to One. And given that the two of you listed uh, Made in Japan, I'm happy to throw that one in there as well. I think that is a great book. And if you don't know very much about Japan, then even you know better. Had I not you know studied the language, uh, taken some culture classes, et cetera, it probably would have made it into my top four. Okay. So we've, we've talked about the best books. Let's talk about the worst books. Okay. So I started with Molson before. David, what was the worst book we read the last year? So I think I gave this away earlier, but I think it was My Life and the Principles for Success by Ross Perot. Honestly, I found some of it really interesting, but it really seemed like he had just written this as propaganda for his presidential campaign. And I think that's why it really suffered. The second half of the book is actually very practical, like literal bullet points of like how to succeed in business, which he claims is something that he gave to uh, his son, Ross Perot Jr. when he graduated from college. and so. I mean, who wouldn't want to read like the you know business advice from a billionaire that they gave to their child as they were graduating from college? I would say reading that second half is worthwhile. But the first half was just like this, ah, shucks, folksy story of 
Ross Perot growing up and being born on a dirt floor <laughs> and riding a ca- horse before he could, you know, walk and blah, blah, blah. And, and getting and, like repeated you know, concussions from that horse. If I remember correctly, <laughs> yeah. and then I got knocked out. Yeah. Imagine how successful he would have been without all the, uh, all the concussions. And I, I do find Ross Perot very inspiring. I, I think he's an incredible businessman. I just think that he wrote that book in order to try to become president and he had an incredibly successful campaign. So I think it worked. I think it did what he, well, I mean, he wanted to be president. He didn't want to get 25% of the vote or whatever, but 25% as a third party is an incredible achievement as well. But yeah, I, I don't think it's worth reading. So I guess it's the principles for success are the part that's worth reading versus my life. It was just like, hey, I want to be president. Here's, here's some folksy stories about growing up in Texas. With regards to becoming president, there's a great uh, Donald Trump quote. I think he tweeted at Mike Bloomberg. He was just like, it's not so easy now, is it, mini Mike? <laughs> we could have said the same thing to Minnie Ross. But go ahead. That's not so nice. <laughs> and Donald did not succeed when he ran as a third party. He did have to get that Republican nomination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, oh, right. Well, you know, Donald Trump's kind of a bully, and that's not so nice. But uh, Ross Perot actually did very well running as a third party. Um, he got 19 percent of the vote, which I think is the most that any third party has gotten since back to the like 1910s. So that, that's and I think it's Teddy Roosevelt maybe got more. Yeah. Bull Moose Party. Right. Yeah. So Ross Perot actually did quite well running as a third party. I didn't mind that book. I it wasn't in my bottom four. It, w- it was definitely in my bottom three. And you know what? I actually thought the opposite of you, David. So, David, you thought that the best thing about it was the second half. I thought the second half was worse than the first half because the first half at least was a cohesive story. Like it, it had continuity. But then what happened is it kind of just just stopped. It just stopped after he like started his, his company. Well, not right after he started his company, but like 10 years into his company, even though he ran it for like 40 years, the book just is kind of like, okay, now I'm done. Now I ran out of time and now I'm just going to write bullet points for the second half. And again, while the bullet points were, yeah, they were pretty good. And uh, it was nice to have so much advice in such a succinct form. The first half of the book had consistency and the second half was just like, all right, here's all the advice I have as quickly as possible. Uh, All right. So for me, maybe I'm being unfair. It's like, if I remember correctly, it's technically a bad book. It's like not super well written and it's a little bit unfocused. But I feel like Ross Perot is such a sweet dude. And the advice at the end of the book, even though it's like so, it's like a total afterthought. He basically just like gives you a bunch of bullet pointed checklists. He's like, lawyers, you'll never be able to understand their invoices. So don't even try. Just have multiple firms. But like, it's good advice. So I, I kind of like the book and I like Ross Perot and, and I'm unfair and I don't like Bob Iger. So for me, that was one of the worst books I read. Even though it was a good book, it was a terrible book. Yeah. So in, I guess to finish off my bottom three, yeah, I had My Life and the Principles for Success as the, the 12th. I had Trillion Dollar Coach as the 11th. And I had Bob Iger's The Ride of a Lifetime as the 10th. So my, my third least favorite. Uh, trillion Dollar Coach is, I, we'll, we'll come back to it. Trillion Dollar Coach is terrible. Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger. I just don't like Bob Iger. Only the Paranoids Survive by Andy Grove. I didn't like that one. Those were my bottom three. Okay. And my bottom three are My Life and the Principles for Success by Ross Perot. I thought that was the worst. Amazing. Uh, I thought the, se- the second worst was Trillion Dollar Coach. And my third worst was Setting the Table. And we've already talked about that. So we, we can come back and talk about uh, Trillion Dollar Coach some more if you'd like. So here's Trillion Dollar Coach. 
like in a nutshell, Bill Campbell often hugged employees. And then it would be like, studies say that people like hugs. It makes them feel good. <laughs> that to me was like the whole book. It, it would be, it would like give you some like Bill Campbell wisdom. There was like third party weird hearsay. And then they'd like find some sort of like study, which feels like it's very much the ethos of Google that they would then cite to support this like storied tech executive who had been in the, in, in the space for like over five decades. And it just, the whole book just didn't seem believable. And it just seemed bizarre. I, I just really didn't like. Yeah, I really wish that Bill Campbell had written a book. Uh, I mean, he explicitly said apparently many times that he wouldn't and that he didn't even really want them to write a book about him. But I would totally read that. But this was written by some, I forget the exact, I mean, allegedly Eric, uh, Eric Schmidt, although I wonder how much he was really involved in writing the book. And then it was like the former VP of product at Google. And then it was like that guy's chief of staff. And so my guess is that that guy's chief of staff is who actually wrote this book and who, you know, found the studies to support what Bill Campbell had been saying from his you know years of experience, as opposed to double blind scientific experiments for how to manage a company. And so, yeah, I 100% agree that that was like the big problem with it was these like I mean, maybe be one book or the other, but like, I would rather just hear about Bill Campbell's advice and not hear about studies that support it or just read about, you know, scientific analysis of management. I'm not sure I would love that book, but at least like that would have been what I was expecting coming into it versus Trillion Dollar Coach. Like they didn't sell it as like a scientific book about management. They sold it as a book about Bill Campbell. And then they spent, I don't know, I think they just wanted it to be a longer book. And so they, they threw in a lot of these quotes from Google studies and studies from other places that kind of tried to back up these, uh, you know, intuitions that Bill had been so successful off of. No, I mean, what you brought up, Molson, is everything that's wrong with science today, right? It's like there's a study sponsored by coffee companies, and then they find how great coffee is, right? Here was a bunch of studies researched to support a position about Bill Campbell that they were preconceived before they went and found the studies about that everything he did was great. And so, of course, they found studies supporting that. So there, it was, there was no objectivity there. It was just, let's say what we like about Bill Campbell, and then we'll list a bunch of studies that support what we said. And you know what? I didn't even get from it. I got a lot about like what Bill Campbell was like, which was nice. That was the best part of the book because he seems like sincerely a nice person who really had a really positive impact on the tech industry. But at the same time, like there was no evidence in that book, despite all the studies they cited that anything that he did was completely reproducible. There were some parts that sounds like, yeah, okay, sure. We can have little chats before our meetings begin and we can be nice to people. And, you know, we can, I don't think I want to give people a hug, but, you know, if you want to give people a hug, it sounds like that works. There was nothing in there that really made me feel like, okay, this was some crack business genius and here's his like play by play and we can just like reproduce these plays and we'll be crack business geniuses. Frankly, I'd be a little bit careful about hugging people in the current era. Yeah, both because you get canceled and COVID. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a double whammy, Bill. All right. Um, I actually spoke to someone else about this book, and he also said it was terrible. So I'm going to go one-star review it on Amazon right now. Wow. Okay, that, that's, that's really strong. I mean, you know, just as an author, right, when you give somebody a one-star review... Like you're like sincerely like really hurting their book. Like yeah. um, the poor guy at Google. <laughs> no, so like when you give somebody a one star review, you should really feel that way. Like you should re- you should really feel it's not a two star, it's not a three star. 
like it really is a one star because a, a one star review has a huge impact. And you know, the, the average review on a lot of books is like a three star, three to four star, right? So when you give a one star, you're saying this is like garbage. Like this is really like terrible, terrible, terrible. So, you know. I think Trillion Dollar Coach was a New York Times bestseller. So I think they will survive Molson's one star. But I do agree with the general sentiment that one stars on Amazon are definitely meaningful. And Molson certainly understands that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, thank you guys for teaching me about reviews on Amazon. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. You get a one star, especially when they're sometimes fake. The only thing worse than a one star, let me tell you, is a one star with a picture. And if it's like a picture of your product being defective, like, oh yeah, that will really mess up the sales of that product, I can tell you. Luckily, I don't think my publisher sells a lot of defective books, but you know. <laughs> don't use me as a publisher. Though. Yeah, that is true. Actually, that is true. Uh, but you know, by contractual obligations, I can't say that. So our worst book, we all agree, was, we, was Trillion Dollar Coach was one we could all agree on. People should not read this book. My Life and the Principles of Success, it sounds like we can pretty much agree on. People should probably not read it. Setting the Table is just me. I, I thought it wasn't bad. I think we also had to spend like $70 to get it because yeah. it's out of print. So definitely don't do that if that's still the case. I think we got it shortly after Ross Perot had passed away. And so I think that was part of why the, the demand had probably gone up a lot. And again, I think Ross Perot is an incredible guy. I just don't think that book is really worth reading. But Molson disagrees. Well, the fact that you... You know him personally, David, or sort of, and like that you still put it on the bottom of your list shows you're not biased. I do not know him personally, but I, I met him a couple of times. He appeared to me in a dream. Yeah. <laughs> so then, then the interesting book for me is that both of you put Ride of a Lifetime in your bottom three. And I actually was like thinking about putting it like my fourth or putting it at least in the, you know, certainly in the middle for me. Um, it wasn't going to be in my bottom three. Why did you put it in your bottom three? Because actually when we recorded the episode, you both were quite positive on the book. It's well-written. It's a good story. It gives you a decent, but I don't know how trustworthy, like review of the industry. But one, I, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I can't like relate to the navigating corporate bureaucracy in order to succeed story. Two, I don't like how Bob Iger literally just like bought his way to victory. It's just like whenever there was a problem, he would just like buy a new company. Another thing I don't like about that. Oh, I, I listened to an interview with Bob Iger and Bill Simmons and Bob Iger just seems like a, just not a cool person. Like he's a cool person, but it's like just kind of all about himself. Another thing about Bob Iger that I don't like. So he writes this book called Ride of the Lifetime. It's like, yeah, and he's like at the top of the ride or whatever you want. He's like at the peak of his powers. Look at what I've done with like Disney. And then COVID happens and he's just like, you know what? I'm out. I, I don't know what exactly he did. He retired. We don't know if that was by choice, Molson. We don't know if he didn't get fired, right? But he's isn't he also the chairman of the board? I mean, yeah, you, they, that's still something that sometimes happens where they force someone out, let them keep the chairmanship. I mean, he was the chairman. And so it's kind of hard to, <laughs> it could be hard to force you out completely when you control the board and are the CEO. And you can say like, oh, we, we shouldn't have this meeting to fire me uh, unless you're also going to continue to, you know, let me stay on. I, I agree with a lot of what Molson had to say in terms of why I didn't like the book. Again, I would actually still say it's worth reading. I, I, I think, frankly, I think we did a very good job of choosing books. So putting it um, as 10th on this list, I still think it's, you know, 
one of the top 10 books I read in the last year. You know, I mean, I, I read a lot of books other than, than what we did read, um, you know, just for the just for the podcast. So I don't like fully say that Ride of the Lifetime isn't worth reading, but just compared to everything else that we covered, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in my top nine. Um, I would say what I did learn from it was the details of the acquisitions and that I found interesting. But I totally agree with Molson that if all of your success, I mean, again, picking a lot of acquisitions that have all largely been very successful aside from the Fox one, I think it still remains to be seen whether that works out. But and frankly, you know, being bold about creating Disney Plus when when no one wants you to, I think, you know, I'm not sure that I could have made all of those calls if I were the CEO of Disney. So I'm not saying like, there's nothing you know impressive about knowing to buy Pixar, Marvel, and LucasArts, but at the same time, those are massive brands that already had incredibly successful films and stuff like that. And so, you know, knowing that you could throw Disney marketing prowess behind it and you know succeed even beyond that also doesn't seem like rocket science either. Where would you put in Copac? You said you said you maybe would have put it in your top four, but you didn't quite. Did did you make a list of one to twelve? I, I didn't end up making. I only did my bottom three, top four, but it would have been obviously between my bottom three and my top four. So it's in the five that are in the middle there somewhere. I personally like the book quite a bit, just because it was so different from my my usual kind of experience. I, I don't know much about mergers of very very large corporations, and so I. I learned something about that there. Of course, I liked there was a bunch of Steve Jobs in that, and I'm a huge Steve Jobs fan, so that always adds some bonus points. To be fair, I did feel there were some serious problems with the book. Number one is that I didn't really get a sense of his management style. I got a sense of his strategy and why he decided to do these large mergers. That was really well explained in the book. But I didn't get a sense of what it's like to be in a meeting with Bob Iger. I didn't get a sense of you know, how he treats his subordinates. I, I didn't really understand what it was like actually running Disney after the end of the book, which you think would be the main thing you took out from the book. But if you want to read a book about mergers of very large corporations, well, this book really has that in, you know, in flying colors. The one other thing I'll throw out is that I think I got this also from that Bill Simmons podcast that Molson already mentioned. He says that he like went through and cut a bunch of stuff from the book that was more controversial. And so like, I wonder what the controversial stuff was, because I mean, there was still, frankly, for a sitting CEO, it, it did have more like color than I expected it to have. But that made me like kind of question it more of like, how much is this just like the, uh, you know, rose colored lens? So I, I think we covered everything in our, our bottom three. Uh, let's move on. What about other books you read in the past year that you'd like to recommend to everybody? So probably business books, but maybe there's a non-business book that you've read the last year that, that you want to recommend to our listeners. I would recommend Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter by 50 Cent. <laughs> it was a really good book. Um, it keeps you entertained. It's a fast read. It feels real. There's like it's packed full of excellent lessons. And one of the things that I really like about it is I really like to go like cross field. Like whenever you go into an area that you don't know very well, you can like pick up like the bits and pieces from that area and apply it to your own life, even though that technically shouldn't be possible. So like by listening to 50 Cent's story, how he came up in the world, how he, you know, sometimes made enemies by design. Um, those lessons in some ways, they can be applicable to your own life, even though I'm, you know, even though I'm not a rapper. Um, so I didn't read it in the last year, but we actually read it together, uh, when, when this was just a, 
book club and not a podcast. I would say Made in America by Sam Walton is a uh, business book that I would really highly recommend. It is more of the biography than the business lessons, but it, it, it definitely gives both. And frankly, I knew very little about the founding of Walmart and how slowly Sam had really built it and how old he was when he founded it too. And I think it just gives a lot of practical advice about how to grow a business in smart ways. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. One I read over the past year that I'll recommend is Creative Selection Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs by Ken Casienda. It's kind of an insider's view of how Apple built software, at least during the iPhone, the beginning of the iPhone era. And it's a walkthrough step-by-step of kind of how they build teams, how they go about ensuring that, that products meet a certain quality level, and how those teams collaborate with each other. Uh, so if you're interested in Apple or you're interested in kind of how you might manage teams in a large tech company, Creative Selection by Ken Casienda is a pretty good book. Uh, Rory Sutherland's Alchemy. I'm not finished with it, but so far it's pretty good. Uh, I would recommend it. What's that about? Uh, he's an advertiser, but it just like gives you all sorts of like little counterintuitive uh, tricks to succeed in life. So one of the things he says, and this kind of plugs in a little bit to what Peter Thiel says about how to start a successful startup, is that like if you want to start a successful startup, your idea has to be illogical because all the logical startup ideas have already been taken. And then he also has an he also has this word which he calls psycho dash logical, which is it's a way of solving problems rather than logically addressing the problem head on. You address things psychologically in the person. So an example he gives, like, it really sucks when you go to the airport and your plane is delayed. So one way to solve that problem logically would be to have the planes arrive on time. But a better way to do it would possibly uh, to say that the planes arrive later than they will actually. So it's, it, it solves the problem psychologically in the passengers who are like, oh, this is great. My plane is here early, as opposed to, um, you know, seeing that the plane is... Uh, yeah, I think you guys understand what I'm saying, even though I'm not failing to explain it clearly. Or maybe not. But there are, like, legal requirements on, like, you can't leave the airport prior to when you've scheduled it. So I'm not sure that that really works. Oh, so maybe the example that he cited was actually the arrival time of a flight. Yeah, they definitely did that in the last few, de- uh, last like five to 10 years. There's all these like rankings of like the best airlines. And so a lot of the airlines have just expanded the expected time of a flight such that they will end up being able to get a higher percentage. They end up being 20 minutes early almost every time. And I used to be a consultant and would, would fly a lot. And it was really interesting where you could actually get to figure out like what percentage of your time are you on the tarmac versus in the air and stuff like that. And for some flights, it's like a huge portion of it. Like, I, I mean, I was living in Boston and flying back and forth to New York a lot. And the actual in the air time of that flight is like 35 to 40 minutes, but it's listed at an hour and a half. And a lot of the time you do spend that amount of time on the tarmac. So, you know, it's, it's not completely inaccurate to say that, but it's really a waste of everyone's time that it's structured that way. I'd highly recommend this book called The Guide to the Good Life. It has nothing to do with business, but it teaches you how to live a happier life. And it like it like raised my happiness levels by like 1.5 to 2. It just basically teaches you like all the wisdom from the Stoics in a very clear, uh, easy to understand form. Highly recommend. 
I just saw you recommend that on Twitter and bought it. So I'll be reading it soon. One book I'll unrecommend. So just like we, we did non-recommendations from the podcast, uh, the book Tim Cook, The Genius Who Took Apple to the Next Level by Leander Connie. I've read some of Leander Connie's other books and they were pretty good. But this book in particular is very vapid. Um, it's the first ever like full-length biography on Tim Cook. And the first third of it's quite good. There is some original research there. But the last third of it is basically just rehashes of press releases and very surface level research. And there's almost nothing about like what it's like to be in a meeting with Tim Cook. Like how does Tim Cook strategize about Apple's future? There's nothing about uh, how Tim Cook has maintained this like incredible work ethic over all the years. So like, you know, there's a lot lacking in that book. So I, I don't recommend it. What products has Apple actually launched since Steve Jobs passed? There's the AirWatch, or uh, Apple Watch. It was, the, was the Apple TV out beforehand? I don't know. Yeah, Apple TV is already out. They relaunched it in 2015 with apps. It didn't have apps before 2015. AirPods are cool, but like, <laughs> I don't know if I would really say he took Apple to the next level. I mean, it feels like he's done a good job of maintaining the level that they were at beforehand and increasing efficiency and stuff like that. But I don't know that Apple's at a next level now. Well, if you look at their market cap, he has increased the market cap more than like 3x or something like that, It's which is pretty big ship to be steering that way. And then they have had two really successful product launches. You think Apple Watch has been a runaway success. They, they actually are the dominant player right now in the wearables category. And then number two, uh, yeah, AirPods have been a pretty big success as well. And then, yeah, he's been he's kept the trains on time, so to speak, in on the Mac, on the iPhone and on the iPad. So I think he's been very successful as a CEO. Do I think that he has the kind of creativity? And he was never trying to like you can't fill Steve Jobs shoes, right? He was never trying to do that. Uh, so he really has to rely on his lieutenants to, to maintain that level. And there is questions about the future. I mean, Johnny Ive has left the company and he was their design genius, right? And there's been some questions about software quality over the past couple of years and some really problematic launches, including macOS Catalina and iOS 13, which were riddled with bugs and had some real like serious security vulnerabilities the last few years that have come out as well. So there, yeah, there's certainly questions about the future, but you can't doubt that the last nine years, he's brought the company to a $1.5 trillion market cap a couple of weeks ago, um, the first company ever to do that. And he has launched some really tremendously successful products. So that were post-Steve Jobs products. I'm certainly not saying he's a bad CEO. I'm just saying that I don't know that Tim Cook is the reason that they're a $1.5 trillion market cap right now. I, I don't know if it's, it's definitely not him by himself, of course. And I, that's, I actually took issue with that in my review of the book. The book calls, is called Tim Cook, the genius who took Apple to the next level. There's no evidence in the book that Tim Cook is a genius. There's strong evidence that he has some really great social values and that he is a really, really hard worker who um, sincerely believes in the vision of the company and um, follows that vision as his guiding star. There's, there's really strong evidence of that, but there's no evidence he's a genius. And again, I mean, Apple's an incredible company and Tim Cook has obviously <laughs> done a good job. I'm just saying, like, I think he's kept the lights on. I don't think he's brought it to the next level. Um, and you don't recommend the book either. So anyway. How many stars did you give it on? Amazon. Do you, you just ruin that book? <laughs> I gave it three stars. and I, I. But you know what? My review is one of the top reviews on there because people know when it's three stars, that's a sincere review. That's somebody who's not just like giving it one star like you're doing uh, just because they want to trash it. I'm giving it three stars and carefully thinking about it and writing a very well-reasoned review. And so I have a lot of likes on Amazon for my review. 
I can't even, I tried to review it and I just like couldn't even figure out how to review it. So I gave up. So don't, don't accuse me of things I didn't do. Yeah. Okay. Tim Cook would have written that bad review by now. He's an executor. You guys remember when I was telling you about the worst thing on Amazon is if you get a one-star review and someone puts a picture. Yeah. Um, I'm on the Bill Campbell page and the top three reviews, there's like two pictures of the Bill Campbell book and then a third picture of two rotting pears. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what this is about. Growing a pear takes common sense and grit. Catch my drift, one star people. All right, five stars. <laughs> <laughs> the next book I would recommend, I'm also not not quite through, but I've been reading it and really enjoying it. It's, it's really weird, uh, is One From Many, Visa and the Rise of the Chaotic Organization. So this is by D. Hawk, who was the founder of Visa, I guess. It's a really weird story, actually, where I, I kind of knew it uh, from, from working in payments in the past. And well, and, and currently, but uh, did not learn it from my, my most recent job. But essentially, Visa was the Bank America card. And so Bank of America had launched a credit card. And then they started to let other banks, um, you know, tag on to the Bank America card and issue their own cards. And so D Hawk was the head of the credit card department at, I'm going to forget the name of the bank, but this bank in Seattle. And he basically was like, hey, everything's messed up. Like, there are all these problems. Bank of America, you're not going to be able to solve these problems. You should just give this away to all of the member banks and like let us figure this out ourselves. And so there was no real company that was founded. Exactly, I guess it must, it must have some corporate structure, but there was no stock uh, for a very long time. It was entirely just owned by the banks that issued the cards. And then it was entirely through committees. So there's basically no real core leadership and no real like corporate, you know, dictates. It's all driven by these committees of the banks that issue the cards. And then based off of the, you know, number of cards that you've issued and the dollar volume that is coming off of your cards, you get, you know, different representation in terms of voting. So Bank of America did still have, you know, 40% of the network. And so they still got, you know, a, an outsized representation in terms of, you know, final decisions. But anyway, I, I find it really interesting. It's very strangely written where it goes from these practical like descriptions of, of what happened in the founding to what he calls his discussions with his old monkey mind. And it literally like shifts to like a different font. And it's just these like philosophical ideas that D Hawk has about like how messed up the world is and how hard it is for organizations to work and how many people are just like retired on the job and just kind of like getting by and uh, doing the absolute minimum in order to not get fired. And I don't know, I, I found it really interesting so far. And, you know, also especially practical if, you, if you're interested in the payment space. Another book, business book that I read the last year that I would really recommend is Game Over, Press Start to Continue, How Nintendo Conquered the World. It's a, by David Sheff. It's about how Nintendo started and then how, especially in the 1980s, it just became so dominant in the video game industry by the late 80s. In fact, I think they, Super Mario at one point was as recognizable as Mickey Mouse. When we were growing up, I mean, all of us were born in the mid to late 80s. Like, Nintendo was it. Like that was the thing that that kids did. I mean, it was it was at least where I was from. It was huge. But this book really talks about how they so tightly controlled the industry and how they put in place some really high quality controls and also how they managed some incredible creative people to get to that level. Um, so I would highly recommend it if you're interested at all in the video game industry. Did we read uh, Get Smarter by Seymour Schulich or that was just me? That was just you. What's that about? 
Uh, it's about this like random Canadian oil executive who just like teaches you how to get smarter. It's pretty good. I also read Scale, which teaches you how to build. It's like the wrong name for the book. It teaches you how to build systems within your company so that you can, so that you can scale more easily. That's good stuff. Okay. So if nobody has any other recommendations, we have actually quite a sad segment now. We have to say goodbye to one of our three favorite co-hosts, Molson. That's, that's really sweet of you, Zach. I made top three. I wasn't top three. <laughs> uh, no, sincerely, like, you know, obviously the three of us are all friends and, and we go back quite a ways. But, you know, I personally am really going to miss doing the podcast with you, Molson. Um, you have a lot of great insights. You have a lot of practical experience. Uh, and you, I think you're very exciting to listen to, actually. And uh, I think you keep things interesting always. And so, you know, uh, I'm sorry that you're, you're moving on. I understand why, though. Um, is, uh, I don't know if David wants to say anything. I also agree you're in the top three uh, of the hosts. Maybe, maybe even number one, actually. I would say that you're the funniest among us, and I definitely laugh the most when I'm, when I'm listening to your uh, feedback about the books. And I feel like I learn a lot, actually. Well, actually, honestly, I think I learn a lot from both of you more so than, than me, frankly. I, obviously, I'm not going to learn from myself. But uh, Kopech, you have a lot of the like, technical insights. But Molson, you have a way of relating it back to life experience that you've had and the business experiences that you've had that I found incredibly uh, useful and uh, have really like made the the lessons from the the books resonate more. So we're definitely really going to miss you. Maybe we can get you to come back uh, every once in a while. Well, thank you. This has been great. It's like I've been at my funeral, but I'm not yet dead. They they're laughing, just consistent with what he said. I I am hilarious. I make people laugh all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not playing all. Yeah, um, I'm totally going to be down to uh, hop in and uh, read some books along with you guys. And it's been an absolute pleasure. What I love about book clubs in general and this book club um, is that we, by discussing these books, it reminds you of the things you've learned. And then by like putting your things, putting the ideas that you process in the books by reading into words, it really crystallizes it in your mind, which is, is fantastic. It's hugely valuable. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to uh, do this with both you guys. And as you know, I've learned tons, tons from both of you. Well, and it's nice we're kind of leaving on a high point too. Um, you know, the I think some of the last few episodes have been some of our best episodes, and it's it's been nice to to have some really strong discussions and, and end like that. But I want to tell people the podcast is not actually ending, so we are going to be back. Paul Graham is replacing me. Paul Graham. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't afford him, but um, we. <laughs> We are coming back for season two, and we're actually going to come back pretty quickly. Uh, certainly by August, we'll, we'll be out with our first episode of season two. And our book for the first episode of season two is actually going to be The Power of Broke by Damon John. So if for people who've been reading along with us, check out that book. We're going to have a new co-host. Um, so we're excited about that too. I, I don't know if it's going to be permanent, but we'll, we'll see. And David and I are, are committed to continuing and continuing to learn together and with all of you. And we're really excited to continue. So Molson, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts uh, for everybody as you say goodbye. Didn't give me a heads up on that one. Um, final thoughts, just what I said before. I mean, like, I think Charlie Munger has a really good quote. He's like, I don't know anyone who's wise, who doesn't read all the time. So read books, and then after you read those books, like write in the margins and really try to process that information, whether whether it's summarizing the books on Twitter or doing a book club with y'all. 
or, you know, reading the books and then listening to us. That's what it's all about. I don't have a great memory. So that's what I need to do in order to remember stuff. So those are my parting words of wisdom. Well, I'll really miss you, Molson. I, I hope you'll keep in touch and we'll still be friends. And uh, <laughs> I don't think I don't think the friendship's going to last, but sure. OK, um, is there anything else that any of the two of you want to plug or, or tell anybody about and how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, nothing really to plug. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. Yeah, I mean, I really like that 50 cent book that I read. I would plug that. Go read Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter. And then you can follow me on Twitter, Molson underscore Hart. I think that's my Twitter username. Okay, I'll, I'll put that 50 cent book in the show notes. And I'm just going to plug my new book. It just launched last week. So it's my fourth book, Classic Computer Science Problems in Java, because I did one already in Swift and Python. Classic Computer Science Problems in Java launched last week. It's available from manning.com. Um, it's my fourth book. It's really excellent because I wrote it. And um, I, I'm sure sales are going to be amazing. <laughs> it's excellent because you wrote it. No, I'm sure it's a great book. I uh, have been watching uh, some of the the Twitch live streams you've done and whatnot, and I've really enjoyed those as well. You should put the the link to your your most recent YouTube video in there as well. You want to plug that, Kopak? Yeah, I agree. I've watched some of those too, and I really really like them. That's very nice of you to say. Actually, uh, both of you, I did a Twitch live stream earlier in the summer for Manning. Um, and both of you recommended to me, hey, you should do more of this. And so uh, I actually just recently did my first extended YouTube tutorial. It's like over an hour long on depth for search, breadth for search, and the A-star algorithm. And I plan to do more. Um, the response has been good, and I plan to do more and keep growing that as well. So I will. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. I've learned so much from both of you. Molson, I've learned a ton from you over the years. You've been a big fan and supporter of mine, and I really appreciate that. And uh, But... I want to say uh, to all our listeners, follow me on Twitter, Dave Kopech, D-A-V-K-O-P-C. We appreciate you so much for listening. Thanks for sticking with us over season one. We've really enjoyed having you. Uh, we've enjoyed the back and forth we've had with some of you on Twitter as well. So thank you so much. And don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to like us. And we'll be back next month to start season two. Have a great month.